Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about well-being. And after the last 12 months, I don't think there could be a more important topic to talk about. My guest is health expert, author, speaker, and mentor, Susan Hunter. She recently told me that she's on a mission to make healthy a way of life and to help people start putting themselves at the front of the line when it comes to their health. I give her a call to unpack what that means. Hello. Hi. We'll do it live. Do it live. I'll write it and we'll do it live. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name's Shane Hatton. I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you. And really the premise is quite simple. I just want to be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Joining me on the phone is Susan Hunter. She's a naturopath, health expert, and founder of the Me First Movement and Radical Self Care Club. She's passionate about empowering and educating people so that they can avoid that inevitable burnout that comes with pushing too hard and losing sight of what's really important. She's a really good friend, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. Susan, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I feel like you are one of the best kept secrets in Australia. And I know as a business person, you don't want to be the best kept secret. And so I'm excited to be able to share some of your genius and brilliance with uh, with the audience. Um, but before we do that, I want to give people a chance to get to know you a bit better. And so we do this thing, Fast Facts. It's three questions, which is, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Sure. So I was born in Melbourne. Uh, born and bred, so um, at the Women's Hospital in Carlton and have always been a Carlton football supporter as wow. well. Wow, okay, so that's going to um, automatically throw some people offside, but that's okay. <laughs> so let's just allow people to sit with the discomfort of that at the moment. Um, I really talked you up and then you threw Carlton in there, So, but carry on, carry on. <laughs> My first job was at the tender age of 11 when I was not wanting to go to school and I would work in my parents' supermarket. So I was working on the cash register from a very young age. Interesting. And then what, I mean, from, from 11 years old, working behind the counter at a, a supermarket, supermarket yeah. to, to what do you do now? So I'm a clinical naturopath and wellbeing expert and founder of the Me First Movement and um, living a very different life to the one I did at 11 when I was shoving Mars bars down my throat <laughs> and eating really naughty food. I, I'm, I'm consciously aware that I just had lunch and now I'm really anxious around what, what I've eaten and coming into this conversation. But let's let's not kind of let's not jump straight down that avenue. And for people who are listening to this, we're going to have a conversation, I guess, in the broader sense around what well-being looks like. Help me fill in some of the blanks between working in the supermarket to doing what you're doing now. What's that? What does that journey look like to become you know a well-being expert? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a long and a short version of this, but um, <laughs> to wrap it up, I mean, it was really very much a case of, you know, finish high school, but with my Middle Eastern background, the expectation was I probably wouldn't have a career and I would probably just be a mum and a wife, but I had bigger expectations for myself. So I was very keen to go to university, get an education, 
Um, I studied an arts degree originally with a psychology and health sociology major, but was terrible at statistics. So there was no way I was ever going to be a clinical psychologist. Um, so then I travelled and um, spent some time just kind of figuring out what I wanted to do and waited, like did a lot of waitering work and came back and did my Bachelor of Health Science in Melbourne and have been practising in my own um, clinic for almost 15 years now. Wow. And I should mention as well, when you when you said the idea of a, a career or being a mum, being a mum is an exceptional career, which, oh, I'm, and which, I am one of those which well. you are <laughs> and, and an exceptional one at that. But again, like part of this, this journey of going from not really sure what you want to do to then refining down to deciding, okay, well-being is the space that I want to play in and want to operate it. You've been in it for, for a long time now. So you've got this incredible wealth of expertise that you've you've um, you've built over that time and so I'm really interested to gain your perspective um, because I think the last 12 months um, again I, I don't I don't love feeling like we harp on COVID all the time but it's just the reality of the world we're living in the last 12 months uh, we've seen you know so much change in terms of our life and our lifestyles and our health and our well-being for you in terms of the clients you work with, the conversations you've been having, what are some of the things that you're noticing in some of the broader conversation around well-being? How's it changed? Uh, what's it looked like over the last 12 months? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think what I've noticed, particularly for people that were Melbourne-based, that even up until very recently, they were still sort of stuck in a lockdown mindset. So really not branching out, knowing that we're in a COVID normal kind of environment where they can sign up for the gym again or get that 12-pack of Pilates classes or even have that getaway or that retreat that they would have had last year um, had there not been this huge disruption. So just trying to talk to clients about shifting from a lockdown mindset to COVID normal mindset has been big. Um, and I've also noticed many of us, and I wrote about this on my blog last week, that there have been some extra COVID kilos put on around uh, most people's torsos. So, you know, a lot of people manage um, their you know various versions of lockdown and the groundhog day nature of lockdown by sort of self-medicating and kind of hitting the sweets and hitting the carbs and probably over-consuming alcohol. And I think there were some statistics out there that we drank more than we've ever drunk before. Yeah, I mean, I saw this. There were kind of um, two groups of people. There were some people who, like for me personally, um, lockdown forced me into this space where I, I got outside more and I ex exercised more. And I'm, I would definitely feel like I'm part of the anomaly. I lost quite a lot of weight during lockdown, and that was my way of of dealing with the kind of situation that we're in. But there's probably, I would say, a lot of people, based on the conversations I've had, where people went the other way. They went, you know what, this is really hard, and I, I feel like it's hard to take care of myself, to look after myself when everything feels like it's so disruptive, whether that's homeschooling kids, whether it's adapting to online work. There was so much disruption. When you talk about the lockdown life, what 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 are you hearing or what have you noticed in that, what it looks like for people? I think particularly people who have children, parents felt very tethered to their, their children and having to be at home. Um, I think um, mental health became a really big issue. Um, routine was something that I found really helped a lot of my clients get through if they kind of implemented 
a morning and an evening routine. There was sort of this, you know, start and finish to the day that they knew that they could always come back to. Um, But, you know, there was a lot of disconnection as well. I think initially people kind of reached out and we were all kind of, you know, battling or trying to get our heads around what was going on because there's so much uncertainty on an hour-by-hour basis even. And um, unfortunately, some people felt like that there was a greater level of disconnection, particularly with second lockdowns for, for Melbournians too. So it got it got harder um, and we had that snap lockdown not that long ago in Melbourne too, which um, for a lot of my clients kind of raised almost like a PTSD kind of experience for them where they just for five days kind of went back into, you know, sitting on the couch, binge watching Netflix, drinking wine on a Monday night. Um, And, yeah, it was really, really fascinating to see. There's something to be said about the ability to find routine and rhythm in life. I know I spent five weeks um, over Christmas up in Queensland with family, not voluntarily. We we went up briefly to see them when the borders opened up and their borders closed very quickly when we were there. And I found just the challenge of feeling like your natural rhythm has been disrupted. It just threw so many different areas of my life out. So when I, I, I got back home, I was just craving that sense of routine and craving that sense of rhythm. Mm. And do you feel mm. like in some ways the last 12 months has, it just feels like a consistent disruption to rhythm? Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's definitely a part of it for a lot of people. The thing I like to always try and come back to, to help people regain rhythm is uh, by kind of working with their body's natural clocks and rhythms that it has. So we have certain cycles or tradian cycles that happen every 90 minutes that we can tap into and and really get the most out of from a learning and um, deep flow kind of work perspective. But we've also got circadian rhythms and we've got our cortisol cycles that, you know, peak and drop over the period of a day. So these are things I'm constantly getting my clients to be more aware of so that they can really um, harness, you know, the peaks of those and make sure that they're kind of working with their body and always kind of thinking ahead to, you know, at this time of the day is when I have my coffee, this time of the day is when I need to kind of just do some admin because my brain's not functioning in a certain, you know, the, you know in, a, in a deep work kind of way. So when we start to understand the body's own clocks and rhythms and cycles, we can feel more in flow and we can get a lot more done from a performance and productivity perspective too. Yeah, I, I like that you've touched on the the performance and the productivity piece of this is that when we're when we know we're at our best, we do our best work, right? So it's going, how do I become more aware of when I'm actually functioning at my best? I mean, one of my favorite questions yeah. to ask team members is like, when are you at your best? And and how do I leverage that um, so that I'm not trying to get something out of you at a time that's actually not going to bring out the best in you? Um, and we, I mean, yeah. if we were to talk about well-being just as a general conversation, I mean, yeah. it's been on, um, you know, strategic plans and it's been on, you know, everyone's agenda for a long time. Well-being isn't something that's new. Um, and and health in in many ways seems like it would be a priority for a lot of people, and yet it's still not. Like we talk about it all the time. We talk about the importance of self care. We talk about the importance of health and well being. So why isn't it sitting right up at the top of a priority list for a lot of people or a lot of organisations? Yeah, I I my thoughts on that are that it's not until you experience a win or to see that 
positive change or improvement in how you perform, what, how much you can get done, how you feel and, you know, what your cognitive function looks like, that you start to be on board. So um, I think people really underestimate some of the basic foundations of health like adequate sleep. You know, when we look now at the research, the data tells us, you know, unequivocally that we have to be putting in place movement, sleep, you know, blood sugar balancing kind of diets in order to be able to perform well. And um, I think there's just this disconnect probably in organisations around the the role of your biology. I think there's been a lot of stuff out there that's been done around mindset mastery and, you know, we're starting to see more of a, you know, shift in terms of psychological support for um, people in organisations, but I don't think anybody's really tapped into the importance of, you know, balancing people's biochemistry in order for them to perform well. And you can do that from a Foundations of Health perspective or you can be health mentoring someone one-on-one in order to get the best out of them and really harness and help them achieve their potential. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because um, for many uh, of the people that I see out there in this similar space to you, they would be out there talking about well-being and it typically comes through one of two lenses. It comes through the lens of take care of yourself mentally and they talk about the mental health and mental well-being, which there's quite a lot of people out there help me adjust my mindset and the importance of a positive mindset, a growth mindset, everything that sits behind that. There's also a lot of people out there in the nutritional space, which is around just eat better, uh, go on this, you know, diet, do this. It's it's the plan, it's your meal planning, everything that goes with that. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about what do you mean when you say the biochemistry or some of that aspect of our health? So this is, this is where my core work sort of lies and it can begin with your genetic predispositions, what gene mutations do you carry and whether those gene mutations are expressing and they can be related to how you create neurotransmitters, your adrenaline output, your serotonin production, your hormones, your propensity for getting diseases. Um, And also you want to look at people's nutrient levels. So there can be imbalances, either excesses or deficiencies. And, you know, quite a lot of my work is based on a lot of data collection. So um, for me, data is king. You know, that's the one thing that helps guide what, each individual treatment plan or regime needs to be for a person. So there's no one size fits all. The other thing you want to look at with biochemistry is, you know, where hormones are sitting. Are they out of balance? You know, are you creating too much cortisol because you're overworked, you're constantly stressed, you're struggling to meet deadlines and you've been doing that for years and now your body's starting to say, no, I can't do this anymore. And that's reflective when we test your hormones. So there are lots of contributing factors for why people burn out. There are lots of contributing factors for why people have digestive problems. They can't sleep at night. Their energy levels fluctuate um, or they're just plain exhausted all the time. So what I always do with every single person I work with is ensure that we are digging deeper and identifying where the imbalances lie and then formulating a strategy to kind of balance that ledger and get them to optimal. 
I, I, some, some of the initial terms that you used in that went way <laughs> over my head and this is why you're the expert. But from what I'm hearing, and again, for people who might be listening to this is very new for them, I mean, my hearing part of this is there's this predisposition around the way that we're wired, our, our chemical makeup, who we are, our genes, what we've inherited that kind of predisposes us to certain ways of being. So it might be that we're more um, susceptible to certain kinds of diseases. It could be mean that um, we have certain hormones that are out of balance. Is that... I mean, is that the simplest way of kind of unpacking it? Yeah, so that's just one element, though, where we're talking about epigenetics and then we can talk about nutrigenomics. So the genetic predisposition is one thing and then how our digestion functions is one thing. What our hormones are doing is another and quite often you're mind mapping a number of contributing factors that are manifesting as insomnia, as an example. So it can... Mm -hmm get quite complex and there can be a number of contributing factors that we're identifying but at a core level my work is about helping people get back to balance by identifying and addressing the contributing factors to what's going on there's no band-aid approach yeah there's a you know real causative uh, cause addressing um that we're doing the entire time that we're working together so that you don't have this problem again three months down the track. It's something that gets resolved or is managed long-term really well. See, that's fascinating to me because we could attribute potentially something like, um, you know, a lack of sleep or insomnia, which is one you mentioned, and we go, well, you know, that's a consequence that I just need, you know, it's it, I need more sleep, you know, so I need to, you know, so I go to talk to someone about well-being and go, I need to slow down, I need to make sure I'm getting eight hours of sleep. But you're saying that there actually could be contributing factors in there that we're unaware of, just in the, the kind of makeup of our body um, that absolutely. could be contributing to that that we're just unaware of? Yeah, absolutely. And it's to do with biochemical pathways, not being optimal, not getting the cofactors from you know, nutrition from what you eat in there in the first place. Sometimes you can be eating the most nutrient-dense diet in the world and you're not really absorbing any of it because your digestive function's compromised. There's a whole lot to take into consideration about whether you have the building blocks for your body to function well. Yeah, that's a nice metaphor for it. Like are the building blocks actually helping to support what you want to do in terms of the way you're building your life. Mm. I'm interested to know, over the last 12 months, um, has there been has that affected people's biochemistry? Has it been anything that's impacted by some of the lockdowns or some of the experiences that we've had? Is has it has it shown up in any particular way? My um, anecdotal evidence from having worked the clients I did, and even myself, you know, it was really noticeable that um, there were big kind of dopamine crashes. So dopamine's a neurotransmitter that we make. Um, there are a couple of nutritional cofactors you need for it. And we release dopamine every time we have a new and different experience in a different environment. So, you know, think about your pre-COVID life. You'd go out for brekkie, then you'd jump on a tram, and then you'd go to a shop. And so all these, throughout the day, you get these little dopamine releases. When we were getting up and just getting into our Ugg boots and just sitting at the computer and we were in, you know, either our living room, our bedroom, or our bathroom or our kitchen, the dopamine dropped and when the dopamine drops we lose motivation and we 
get quite sluggish and our sleep gets affected and we tend to really struggle um, with our mood. We can feel quite low, depressed. So that was not an uncommon presentation during the COVID lockdown for a lot of people where they really, it was that groundhog day nature of things. So quite often I was giving clients vitamin B6 and zinc and tyrosine, which are the nutritional cofactors for helping make more endogenous dopamine. And they would find that they would get that lift and that ability to get the motivation up to do what they needed to do. See, with that, you know, we often hear about dopamine as something when we're, um, that kind of hooks us into social media platforms. We're looking for those little mm. kind of dopamine hits. Would that be an element of, so potentially someone sitting at home, they're feeling like they're lacking that motivation. They're not getting that dopamine mm-hmm. from the daily activity. So what do they do? They go straight to social media looking for potentially that similar experience. Would that be something? Absolutely. That, right. Yeah. So dopamine deficiency quite often I'm asking questions when if it's a kid I'm going do they just want sugar all the time so they're kind of self-medicating with little you know with sugar hits you know it's addictive addictive tendencies so it's sugar and screens for children for adults often it's things like it can be sugar it can be screens it can be alcohol it can be recreational drugs it can be cigarettes you know so or you know online shopping um so when we that one hit a nerve for me i definitely did way too much (laughs) online shopping during lockdown i discovered amazon and i realized how quickly things could show up after i ordered them i was looking for the dopamine hit as well obviously yeah, so I know there was this little craze, you know, a fad at one stage in the States where people were doing dopamine deficiency diet, like dopamine diets, where they were just stripping out any of those extra um, dopamine hits to just kind of come clean and, 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 and rehab from too much dopamine-seeking behaviour. Wow. See, that's fascinating to me because I could see how the last 12 months would have changed the way that we – or what the the experience for people that, that, that it would want us we would crave that that dopamine hit and so if we're finding it in chocolate if we're finding it in shopping if we're finding it in alcohol you can understand why when we're consistently going back to that for that substance where where it's easy to put on the extra covid kilos it's ex, you know mm. it's easier to go to those experiences maybe get hooked on something um mm. you know maybe quite addictive because we're looking for that continual hit yeah you can do dopamine challenges if you feel like this is a problem but like seriously, I'd be looking more at what, you know, do I have that genetic predisposition for being a low dopamine type? Some people are prone to being high dopamine types. Um, so genetic expression is one element, but then also looking at am I eating enough of the foods that give me the cofactors to make dopamine? Um, and then also just looking at your lifestyle and environment and how you can kind of maximize, you know, balance. You want balance, basically, not too much and not too little dopamine. So there's kind of healthy ways to produce it, and there's really unhealthy ways to produce it by the sounds of things. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right. Screen addiction is not the way to try and lift it. Right. So if you feel like if you're listening to this and you you feel like over the last 12 months, your mood's starting to become sluggish, but you feel better by being able to just immerse yourself in a movie or immerse yourself on your screen time or your online shopping, it, it can actually be a, a good wake up call or I guess a trigger for us to go, actually, maybe there's something here that my body needs that it's not getting right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Brene Brown talked not that long ago around this concept of using those very things that we can form addictions to to numb ourselves as well. So you've just got to be asking yourself, is this healthy? Is, you know, sitting down in the evening and watch a show on Netflix for an hour or so is one thing. But if you're using it as a way to kind of, you know, numb yourself, then yeah. it's not it's not a good thing anymore. Yeah, and it's and often we use it as an as a form of escape to to get away from whatever what is the mundane or the you know the things that aren't giving us the triggers that or the um the hit that we're really looking for. So this is yeah. like what lockdown has looked like. It's been the picture of that, and so in many ways we're probably all still feeling the effects of some of this experience. So, I mean, what do we do to start to shift that? How do we start to become more aware of it, number one? And obviously that's a lot of the work that you do. But, like, what are some Mm. of the things that on a day-to-day basis we could be, I guess, a bit more practically looking at to start to shift this? Look, I think there are some contributing factors beyond just not having the cofactors in place and having had the you know, disruptive experience of lockdown, um, there can be, um, you know, chronic stress will be one of those things that will drop it. So really good stress management techniques and making sure we're supporting our body to stress less. Um, Sleep is huge, you know, so you really want to be making sure that you're getting adequate sleep and good quality sleep. Um, If I can guide anyone to another great podcast. um, Yeah, please do. Yeah, the Huberman Lab, um, Dr. Huberman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, He's he takes a deep dive into a topic every month and his first topic he covered in terms of covering the neuroscience of something was sleep. And so he talks about the importance of light and dark cues. He talks about this different sleep hygiene practices that you can be doing in your pre-bed and your post-bed routine to make sure you sleep well. So I just think sleep is such a, a core thing for how you're going to function as a human. Um, so that would be definitely something I would manage well. Um, and then I'd just be making sure I'm eating really well in order, you know, and, and, and so in order to eat well for healthy dopamine production, you want to eat good quality protein at least a couple of times a day to get the tyrosine from that. And you want to be eating, you know, foods that are rich in minerals so that looks like whole grains and you know fruits and vegetables so it's all it sounds all a bit boring but definitely you know important to do but if that isn't the descriptor of most of when it comes to health and well-being is it's people want to make it this you know extravagant you know life-changing experience but more often than not it's the the essentials it's the basics it's making sure that you're not just sleeping but getting quality sleep it's not that you're just eating but it's actually you're eating well and and eating um foods that are going to give you the protein and minerals that actually support your biochemistry is that is that how it's all linking together Absolutely. It's just those brilliant basics. Like they are the foundation. And then if you want to really hone in and do some, you know, targeted therapeutic work on something that's bothering you, then we, you know, we can explore that and get something that is tailored to exactly what you need by identifying why that is going on. So very much um, get those basics in place and they will serve you. They will definitely serve you. Yeah, really helpful. Like in terms of if we look, work through the layers at its core, it's work out how are you wired. If we um, 
need to change the way you eat or change the way you sleep or change the way that um, you work. Actually understanding yourself better is the starting point to that. But if you're not at that stage yet and you're just looking for some practical things to do, just by, by thinking through more around the quality of your sleep, what you're eating, and is this actually supporting um, to me to function at my at my peak performance rather than could it actually unknowingly be undermining my ability to be able to perform um, as a leader or as an individual? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, my whole, my obsession really is to just educate and empower people about this stuff because when they start implementing it, they start to really see that shift. Yeah, and I could imagine that you could, one of the things you would actually see the transformation in a person when they when they feel like they're showing up at their best um, and when they're, when they're actually taking time to invest in themselves, which kind of leads me to the next question, which is you, you obviously uh, talked about in your, in the introduction around the me first kind of movement that you're kicking off and you do a lot of work with helping people in the me first space. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean by me first? Uh, what's involved with that? Where did that come from? Yeah. So a lot of the people that reach out to work with me tend to be Gen X women who want some support with kind of navigating, you know, whatever health issues are coming up for them. But quite often we're looking at, you know, hormones and mental health and we're looking at energy management. And um, what I noticed was they would only really come and see me after their last kid had gone to school or they'd kind of gotten to the C-suite and they had worked their guts out and put their career first or put their families first. And for me, me first, you know, and I can say this from experience, is really about flipping that around and being able to really um, put yourself ahead of, of everything else and put yourself at the front of the line. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an activism kind of approach to well-being. Um, and I also love talking to and getting the women and, and even the men um, who do shelve themselves often for, for, for different reasons um, to really take on this concept and begin implementing radical self-care. So, you know, it really is about ensuring that you are looking after all elements of yourself, not just the physical or the mental. We're talking about the emotional, the spiritual, the social, environmental well-being so it's there's a lot to how we can really be making sure that we are as well as we can be i like the phrase that you use which is we often put ourselves at the back of the line how do we start putting ourselves at the front of the line which can seem really counterintuitive um in terms of we're wired very much to put others first to treat others you know better than ourselves but it's really comes back to that whole concept of fitting your own um, oxygen mask first, right? We're, we're no good to yeah. other people if we're no good to ourselves. And so um, putting ourselves at the front of the line isn't about an arrogance thing. It's actually about how do we best be in service to the people around us by actually prioritizing our own well-being. Yeah. And look, what we fail to see is that when we care for ourselves deeply and deliberately, we naturally begin to care for our families, our friends, our, you know, our, our colleagues and the world in a healthier and more effective way. And then we they get this better version of us too. So it's like a win-win situation. Yeah, I love that. I'm interested to know your perspective. So this Radical Self-Care Club, we've talked about, um, you know, just well-being right across the board, but why radical self-care? Why not just self-care? Why does it have to be so radical? 
Well, I I used to I used to have a problem with people saying they were doing self care because often you kind of conjure up these images of having a facial and getting your nails done and a <laughs> massage and that's supposed to be self care. Right. Um, where I struggled with that, like for me, self care was getting over the guilt, you know, of thinking that God forsake, you know, you got forgot that you would think that you were the the person that needed some help. Um, it's about finding the support. It's about um, living an unapologetic life and being good with just who you are. And for a lot of people, like they haven't even begun that process of beginning to explore who they are and what they want and what they need anyway. So there's this process of self-discovery that's often happening in people's lives when they're in their 40s. <laughs> um, right. So we, we were told when we were really little that we had to be really mindful of the people around us and be respectful and, you know, you were not to really take up space. And I felt for a really long time. I was not really allowed to take up a whole lot of space. So radical for me is being empowered and being able to just, you know, stand in what I want, what I need, asking for it, living unapologetically, and it's ongoing self-care. It's turning up every morning on the yoga mat or turning up every day to do that run. You know, that's the stuff that's actually an act of self-love and self-care. So that is a little bit different to just going to the nail bar. I'm so glad you said that. I, I couldn't agree more. This idea of self-care is not just a little bit of me time. It's actually um, creating a lifestyle that that prioritizes and emphasizes the importance of your own well-being and actually taking care of yourself and putting making health a priority for you. Um, one of the things you yeah. talk about um, uh, in terms of the radical self-care club, you say, um, it's actually radical to eat healthy. Like, you know, tell yeah. me a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. So with Radical Self Care Club, I just decided it was time to launch it because I found myself like every single week talking to a client thinking, why doesn't everyone know this stuff? And they would be having an aha moment. And I'm like, everybody needs to know this because it is, you know, it's important for you to know to be healthy and to be well. Um, so a lot of people are in the dark about what well-being actually means. So Radical Self-Care Club is like a monthly meetup with some weekly videos I send out where we do take a deep dive into a topic and it might just be foundations of health or it can be systems like digestion, your immune system, or it can be about how to implement this stuff with healthy habits. And the the reason <laughs> the reason why... I thought we should do radical self-care was because, um, you know, people think eating five vegetables a day is pretty radical. You know, the West, the standard Australian or American diet, a.k.a. SAD diet, has gone so far into this processed and ultra-processed world that it's weird to eat just basic kind of whole food, plant-based diets now. So it is a bit radical to go to sleep and get eight or nine hours a night. It is radical to really, you know, decompress and reduce your stress load and say no to more stuff. That, you know, that whole it wearing the badge. Yeah, like everyone's kind of wearing this badge of honour going, I'm busy, I don't need to sleep that much, you know, we're grinding, I'm, you know, just really pushing themselves to the limit and thinking that is okay. And your body when you're 20, 30, maybe even up to 40 will let you do that. 
and then it's going to say no. <laughs> so yeah. um, the earlier you get in, the more you're going to be able to have a disease-free long life, you know, and I'm all about living to 100 without any chronic diseases. So, yeah, that's what Radical Self Care Club is about, is helping people put in place the things that are going to help them feel their best. At the start of this uh, chat, you mentioned that one of the biggest barriers that stop us from, you know, taking that radical self-care approach or putting ourselves at the front of the line is that we often can't see some of those real quick wins and um, we can't see, you know, we, we need some of those quick wins. Like what are some of the things that we could do um, that are relatively accessible for us to be able to do that could, might help us to be able to see some of those quick wins and the value of this conversation we're having? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Early nights, I know it sounds really boring, and when you're at my age, I think 9 p.m. is new midnight, so <laughs> um, you do really, really have to be particular about your sleep, unless you're a shift worker. So then we have to adjust. But we know that the best sleep we get, the best quality sleep, is the sleep we get before midnight. So if you can get yourself tucked into bed by 10 p.m. and not be looking at your phone. Interesting. Um, that's very that's terrifying for me, knowing that the best sleep is before midnight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see one change I'm making very quickly. Yeah. My advice is always to reset people. I'm like, go camping, like to an unpowered site for a week. And that is a really quick way to start sleeping in tune to the light and dark cues of the world and and, and how nature operates um i know when i camp i'm in bed as soon as it starts to get dark um and i sleep really well so sleep is everything like sleep is where our you know memory learning um our our body's ability to even do emotional first aid that's what happens when we're in dream sleep um sleep will recharge you restore you so that you can do the next day you know there's a repair going on we actually have something called the glymphatic system where are we literally giving our brain a shampoo and detoxing it while we sleep so if I could give anybody any advice, it'd be like get on top of your sleep if it's not already great. Oh, my gosh. Super simple but probably easier said than done, right? Yeah, usually. <laughs> Susan, I've just – I've loved this conversation because I feel like in many ways you've given me a a very thorough um, research-based understanding of how I operate and probably and some insight as to why – in many ways, I, over the last 12 months, have been drawn a lot easier to the screen time or to the chocolate or to those little dopamine hits um, and really just some practical ways to put ourselves first and stop kind of putting ourselves last so that we can show up and be the best version of ourselves. You said to me um, in a conversation that we had earlier around that you're really looking to wait to make healthier way of life. And I, I just love that concept and I love that thought. And I think what you shared today is going to be super helpful for people. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast um people can find you at susanhunter.com.au and i'll put the link to that um on the uh, on the show notes for the podcast um but how could people get involved and find out more a little bit uh, about the radical self-care club or the me first movements uh -huh. so um if you just go over to the website there's um a work with me link and there's a whole lot of information about radical self-care club and our next topic, I think, in April is going to be about exercise. I'm getting Beck Stone, who's a sports nutritionist also and an athlete, to come along and talk um, about what we can be doing from a movement perspective. 
Amazing, amazing. I absolutely encourage everyone to reach out with you. I said at the start of this this podcast, you're one of the best kept secrets and I think that needs to change because I think a whole lot of people need um, the work uh, that you do and how you can help them to kind of really ultimately perform at their best because uh, well-being is so important and our, our own personal health is just so critical. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Shane. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.